As light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. And we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So the, cl- the cure, as you may gather from all the teachings that have been offered so far, and the practices, that the cure for this malady, the cure for pain, is in the pain. Is waking up to our human condition. A little story about waking up. This is from a teacher named Anthony DeMello, who many of you probably read, a wonderful teacher. He said, last year I was uh, watching Spanish television and I heard a story about a gentleman who knocked on his son's door. Jaime, says, he says, wake up. Jaime answers, I don't want to get up, Papa. The father shouts, get up, you have to go to school. Jaime says, I don't want to go to school. Why not, asks the father. Three reasons, says Jaime. First, because it's so dull. Second, the kids tease me. And third, I hate school. And the father says, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why you must go to school. First, because it is your duty. Second, because you are 45 years old. (laughs) And third, because you are the headmaster. Everything that we offer is in behalf of, of pointing you to and hopefully you waking up to your true grandeur, this, uh, a tremendous capacity in each of us for freedom and balance and a capacity to sit in the middle of this world with all its, uh, with all its joys and its sorrows, with a heart that's at ease, a mind that's balanced, Uh, eyes that are clear, heart that is tender. And that's what it's all about. And all the teachings are, are asking us to wake up and look at what our predicament is. Because as we wake up, and as you begin to feel, not because you've gone anywhere, but because for maybe a short time in the span of your life, this retreat, for example, and since you started your practice, for a short time you didn't go anywhere. You let your mind settle into your body. You let yourself come, come back to reality, wake up to reality. You may begin to sense that there is no um, actual path to enlightenment. That, in a sense, enlightenment, lightening up, waking up, surrounds you in every instant. It is, as we've been pointing to, it is the very nature of your mind to be awake. To be free. And we recognize that in moments when we are simply being with our life the way it is, without, um, without grasping, without condemning, without being lost in a, uh, a story about our life. And you may sense it in all those moments through the day. Now, I like to think of it as after, um, it's the moment of waking up, but I like to, to 
to highlight those moments and that we can do right now even after your last thought has passed and before the next one comes. Notice what your experience is when you're not, um, when you're just simply awake to what's, what's here. What do, you, what do you find when you, after your last, we'll say it, drama is gone and before the next one comes? Anybody willing to say what you experience when you're simply awake to what's here? And, this, and when I ask this question, I ask you not to consult your memory. Peace. Peace. Anyone else? Well-being. Well-being. Space. Space. Quiet. Quiet. Frustration. Frustration, okay. Bliss. 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 Wow. Brighter vision. Brighter vision. Yes. So we didn't, we did, in, in pointing to this and reminding you of this, we didn't add anything. We didn't, we didn't uh, create some kind of new experience. We simply, for a few moments, uh, let go. Let go of our obsession with what's next. Let go of before. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't go to the to the um, to the reservoir of memory for a moment. I was thinking, as I just said that, there's a poem from from Hafez where he says, "What do people who are sad have in common?" says they've all built a shrine to the past and often go there and do a strange wail and worry. What's the beginning of happiness? It's to not be so religious like that. It's called uh, Stop Being So Religious. That's, and I wrote a second verse. It's what do people who are worried and anxious have in common? They've all built a shrine to the imagined future and often go there to do a strange wail and worry. What's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. So there's no path to this awakening, to life, to the peace, to the bliss, to the freedom. This peace and bliss and freedom is already, always, your natural state. So the path, that we, what we describe as the path, is clearing, is, is um, clarifying, is seeing what it is that blinds us, what is it that confuses us and leaves us in a state of, of, um, of searching, what leaves us in a state of holding on, what leaves us in a state of, I can't, in a, in a state or in a belief that I can't be happy now. What is it that that does that? How does that happen? Because really the Buddha, as he tried to figure it out himself, and after trying, as all of you know, he tried to find happiness. He was called the happy one, but he wasn't so happy. He was just like the rest of us when we're in a state of confusion. He wasn't so happy. And he tried to maximize the, the world of, of um, this extraordinary world of sense pleasures. He saw that this world of sense pleasures is so um, delicious. These, when James spoke about this fathom-long body, where it lies the world or lies the whole of the world, he... the extended version of that within this fathom-long body with its senses and its, its perceptions and inner sense lies the world. So the, uh, these senses register an extraordinary array of, of experiences. And they're beautiful. They're beautiful and they're horrible and, and they're uh, amazingly intoxicating. But he saw something about the world of the senses that was really significant. As he tried, he was relative to, any, to other people in his time, he could exhaust the, the world of, 
of pleasure. Um, he could have more food and more wine and more, more um, freedom, you know, freedom to do what he wanted to do than, than really anyone. And very similar to the condition that we, the privileged condition that we find ourselves. Just think about this world and what's going on in this world and the fact that we're here in this room. What an unbelievable touch of grace that allows us to sit here safely and drop into this and appreciate this, what the Tibetan, one te- Tibetan teacher calls natural great peace. In other places in the world, literally billions of people couldn't even meet like this. So relative uh, to our times, the, the, the Buddha lived like us. And he knew that, there, that the, the pleasures of the senses were extraordinary. And he suggested in his teaching that we need to see three things about the world of sense pleasures. We need to see their pleasure, obviously. We need to see their dangers, sometimes called their defects. What happens? What, what happens to us in the face of such an, a sensual world where these, our senses, and the, the more present we are, the senses open up even more. What happens to us in relationship to these? And then he, I'll just, I'll elaborate on that a little later, but then he said, we also need to know what it's, what it's like to be free of our dependency on these sense experiences. So the pleasure, the danger, and, free, and the potential of freedom. And James alluded to this today when he introduced or spoke again about the, the seemingly innocuous tones or valence that accompanies every one of our experiences. All day long, you had basically six experiences repeating themselves. You had sights, you had smells, you had tastes, you had sounds, you had uh, uh, sensations, you had thoughts. Did I miss any? Thoughts and emotions, same. So you have basically six, uh, called the six doors of perception, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and, and what we call the six door of perception, the mind. And you had your, the totality of your experience today, sometimes called the all, was, uh, were these six experiences repeating themselves. And each one of those six re- experiences that you had all day, isn't a, I find it amazing that that entire drama that I think is that whole show that it's, it seems so dramatic, my day. It really is nothing other than six experiences. In some way, nothing happened. <laughs> and yet it seems like high drama on the, on the open range or whatever. It's craziness. Just like Bhante Gunaratna says. Each one of those six experiences is accompanied with a, a feeling tone, a valence that, that is conditioned by, by, um, by our past experience of that particular sense experience. So for example, one, for one person, the, when they walk down the road toward the, the end of the road, they start to pick up the scent of horse manure. Any of you smell the the horse manure. Now for some people that produces a pleasant feeling. It has pleasant historical associations and there's there's a sense of, believe it or not, liking it that quickly follows. And what happens when we, when that moment of pleasure is felt and it's liked and if it goes unnoticed what our mind does is it, it, it produces a little bit of a charge, I like it, and that, that little charge then gives off a little electrical, another electrical charge in the form of memories, associations, and then maybe even a plan to go horseback riding when we get <laughs> done with the retreat. Now nothing happened, but, but 
literally in a moment, in a flash of a moment, we went from this natural great peace, this open field of creative possibility, a feeling of bliss, of enough, of okay, just stepping, stepping. We went from that into a, a, into a world of what we would call wanting. We might call it, as the Buddha did, becoming. Our mind starts toppling forward into what's next or goes back. All of this fed from just a, a, a little reaction to one of those feeling tones. And of course, if, it, if that has an unpleasant association, produces a dislike, and then the dislike is followed by, uh, should I turn around now? And then the quick turnaround, and then that unpleasantness is associated with um, something I need to get away from. And in this way, these simple reactions, our life is, is moved. We're moved into the world of action, into the world of drama. And often when the, new, when the neutral feelings arise, feelings that are neither pleasant or unpleasant, we just don't notice. We space out. Or we fall into a, a kind of dream world, a, a reverie or a... Um, or a, we enter very quickly into what we might call virtual reality. We think about ourselves, we think about our lives, and once we do that, we've fallen into delusion. So the pleasant leads to greed in the mind or grasping, the unpleasant to aversion in the mind, and the neutral, when it goes unrecognized, uh, leads to delusion. We start entering into uh, the world of the imagined you, and you lose the the vivid you, we lose the present you, the sufficient you, the enough you that you find when you're simply present. Nobody can find anything insufficient when you're simply present. So the sense of insufficiency is all born of the past or what we think we need for the future, which is also born from the past. In the immediate present, when we wake up to our real condition. Um, there's, um, you could say, pieces there, open, welcoming, everything's possible. We can't believe this, that it's so close. And because it's, in some ways, in a certain way, it's too easy. We don't have to go anywhere to find a sense of, of relief. So we wander a long time in our reactions to these feeling tones. We wander around in our thoughts. We wander around in a state of, of waiting and wanting and hoping. We, ra- we wander around a lot in regretting. And this is, the, this is the mind that we tend to live in. And we do this in a very, in a very innocent way. None of us, it doesn't make us bad people. We go into our thoughts to, uh, to um, completely innocently. We go to our desires because we love ourselves and we think that they will satisfy us and make us happy. We go to try to get away from things because we love ourselves and we think if we can push something away or get away from something, we'll find relief. But these reactions, it turns out, the reactions of liking and disliking and then the, the, comp- the compounding of our reactions uh, of wanting and not wanting and then delusion hardens our, um, these patterns harden into a chronic state of dissatisfaction. And when I'm in when I am repeatedly in a state of delusion, lost in my imagination, in a state of wanting what I don't have, any of you ever land in that? Anytime I'm in a state of not wanting what I do have, I'm sure you had a lot of those today, my, I become convinced the delusion of these kinds of states, the reason they are called hindrances, 
are they color my perception in such a way. They put me to sleep in a way because they, they color my perception in such a way that it makes it seem impossible for me to find relief right where I am. As Eckhart Tolle puts it, this tendency of mind to get lost in our desires and reactions and thoughts, it turns the present moment into a place that we're just passing through on our way to something else. Our whole sense of well-being becomes oriented to um, a future that, of course, never arrives because it doesn't even exist. Or it gets related, every, related to a past that is completely gone. But it turns the present moment into something that, um, that's just not the source of real joy, not the source of relief. He says it turns it into a pass-through on the way to something else, or it turns it into the, an obstacle. The present becomes the obstacle to getting where we're going. Or the present becomes the enemy itself. And all this happens in our minds in reaction to the only, only place that we can find life. The only reality is found right where you're sitting. Everything else is imaginary. So our, gra- at least I'll speak for myself, my happiness for you as you settle in here, as the dust begins to settle, as your mind settles into your body, as you start to experience um, a space, a space of openness, as you start to be able to accommodate and not have to leave the pleasurable experiences and the unpleasant experiences and even begin to sense and hover and remain in the neutral experiences, you start to, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, you start to reclaim your heritage. That's why I'm so happy. He says, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being that destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. Our mind will constantly convince us that we have to go elsewhere to find relief. We have, the bell has to ring in order to find relief. And if you ever think that, isn't it true that the bell becomes the secret to happiness? <laughs> and it's a trick. It's a trick that our mind plays. Because the bell, do, the bell rings and we go, ah. And we actually think, I learned this from James years ago. We think it's the bell that gave us the relief. But what really gives us the relief is that we're no longer bound up in that state of waiting, in the state of wanting. And just to think that we are taught from day one to stay in a state of wanting. Again, this is very innocent. Sogyal Rinpoche puts it like this, describing our whole culture. He says, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. That means this endless waiting and wandering. This brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions, which means really unreliable distractions. I, wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call them barren, but I'll just read what he has to say. <laughs> Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in, and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda, 
and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction in and around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. Obsess then with false hopes, dreams and ambitions which promise happiness but actually lead us to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us thirstier. So to be able to come out of that tangle of that trance of the aversive mind that says, I can't be happy until that person stops breathing hard, stops opening and closing the door so loudly, till they stop taking so much food in the lunch line. Whatever it is that you have uh, built your, um, your reason for your misery, we call it the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> Somebody who, is, who turns out within a span of a minute be, to become the source of all your suffering. But also the opposite is true, is the, what we call the Vipassana Romance, where someone in the room the retreat triggers a little pleasant feeling like the way they look or their flip-flops or, <laughs> and produces that feeling and the feeling is pleasure is followed by liking and then the little pressure of liking is followed by wanting and pretty soon you have dated, mated, <laughs> married, gotten exhausted and are certain that you're ruining the other person's retreat and they can feel every... And nothing happened. Nothing happened. But our mind becomes entranced and it becomes the, the, the belief that this is... I'm finally going to get what I want. This is... Uh, to be able to... to not stop this, this will keep going on until perhaps the day you die, but to be able to wake up, like Anthony DeMello says, and see, oh, this is the wanting mind. This is the aversive mind. This is a dream about myself. This isn't myself. This is virtual me. I'm not measurable in real time. Where can I, where is not okay? Where's not enough in real time? We wake up and go, oh, that's the judging mind. That's the comparing mind. That's the doubting mind. I'm not in the past. Oh, that's the, that's the regretting mind. I'm not in the future. Oh, that's the worrying mind. As Hafez says, he says, uh, now that all your worry has proved to be such an uh, um, unhealthy occupation, it's time to get a better job. <laughs> and that's what we do here. We get a better job. The job of waking up to what our mind does. Waking up to the world the way it is. Waking up to seeing clearly. That's, as James spoke about Vipassana, seeing clearly, seeing things as they are. So the Buddha found himself in the same predicament of putting, as he described it, putting misplaced faith in, in, a st- in being in a state of becoming, of being obsessed with what's next, getting what he wanted, getting rid of what he didn't want. He, um, he woke up out of that. And what woke him up was, uh, was a yearning a yearning to find, he wanted only one thing. He wanted to feel a a reliable, an unshakable sense of relief. He wanted to be happy. And that yearning led him to a very, very profound desire. So as you hear this, the Buddha was filled with desire. And you can hear by that particular desire that some desires 
are very, very wholesome. They're healthy. They're those desires that desire to end suffering. It's so, it's so genuine. It's so, it's so much an expression of our love of ourselves. Our love of life is to, I want to, I want to be happy. It's the universal yearning and desire that everyone has. But he, over the course of his practice, he discerned what kinds of desires lead to, to endless wandering and more desires and what kind of desires lead to the cessation, to the fading of that, um, of that compulsion, that addiction that we tend to be caught up in. So if you try to just stop having desires, that's mental illness. That is fundamentalism. Our practice is to study this, to study desire, to study aversion, to study this moment by moment, to, as James has been saying so beautifully, to be curious about it, be interested, feel it. The objects of your desire are endless, usually. But the state of wanting, the state of waiting, the state of hoping, it's often unexamined. And it's often a very painful state. It's often a state of suspended happiness. Puts us in a trance. So the Buddha woke up to see that he had put uh, too much faith in things that don't really give him give us lasting satisfaction. Because each time we get entranced by the world of the sense pleasures, we don't recognize that each pleasure that we experience has a, a super short shelf life. It doesn't last very long. This is what we tend to build our life around. Very short moments of pleasure. And don't realize that the, in the wake of that pleasure, there is often a feeling of loss. And then that loss is often, because we don't recognize what we're doing, is often filled again with another desire. And before you know it, we are just on a wheel. We are, as the Buddha that later described, we're taking birth into the world of desires. After his awakening, when he sat under the Bodhi tree and he stopped pushing things away, stopped grabbing, stopped getting lost in, um, in the, the imagined world of himself and tasted the reality of himself moment by moment. When he woke up, he saw that all those places that his mind went um, were like little mini lifetimes. And he, as his mind rested in the present moment and opened and it was so free from waking up to what was going on, he let out this song and he says, through many births in the wandering on, I ran Seeking, not, not finding the maker of this house. I just saw that this house just makes itself over and over again. It says, oh, house builder, you've been seen. Dukkha is, is birth again and again. Dukkha means uh, stress, suffering. Dukkha is birth again and again. When we just get carried along by this stream of, of endless desires, Dukkha is, is birth is Dukkha again and again. He says, oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build another house again. Your rafters are broken, which means um, the, your mind's no longer confused. Ridgepole destroyed, which means ignorance. You've seen clearly the defects of samsara, of this endless wandering. And then he says, my mind has gone to the unconditioned. What does that mean, mind gone to the unconditioned? means it's gone to that realization that what we are, as we're even sitting here, the very nature of, the very consciousness or awareness through which you are perceiving, the one who sits here is unconditioned, is, is timeless, is deathless, is free. Now that doesn't square very well with the one who you think you are. 
But this unconditioned begins to um, dawn on us when we come out of the tangle of, of um, as much discursive thinking. So when the Buddha woke up and he saw the way the, our mind goes again and again into this endless wandering, this samsaric loop, turning the present moment into this, the only place we have life into a place that we're just kind of passing through, he, he saw that what he realized was, was so close and it was so wondrous and it was so, in some ways, so easy didn't have to go anywhere. And so vast. He didn't think anybody could get it. But then he saw that there were those with just a little dust on their eyes. And I consider everyone here those with a little dust. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have some inclination that, that freedom or peace is an inside job. It's, it's not about getting somewhere. It's about settling back. And when he realized that there were those with a little dust, he, he, um, he, he then thought of those who he could share what he had learned. And what he shared and what has, what has been shared now for 2,600 years, basically the same thing. The, the, the river of the teaching is, has, um, has pretty much encapsulated in one main teaching. The teaching that, that hopefully you are realizing in real time, not just adopting as a view or a philosophy, but something that you're testing and realizing moment by moment. And it's the teaching called the Four Noble Truths. And he, the first people he went to when he realized that, uh, that we don't have to leave this moment that we have this capacity to be free. He went to see his friends who he thought, thought were the most sincere, his ascetic friends. And he had realized that the indulgence in excessive pleasures of the senses, that just, that just gets us more entranced. And he also saw that his ascetic friends who are denying themselves pleasures were just sick and tired and and confused, and, and that wasn't going to help. That wouldn't bring happiness either. But at least they had sincerity. I think James spoke of sincerity. They had sincerity and a, what seemed like a true desire to be happy that they had articulated to themselves. It wasn't just kind of a vague sense of, you know, feed me, feed me. You know, that Hafez poem where he says, admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me, love me. He says, you don't say this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. <laughs> but this longing for us to connect, he goes on to say, why don't you become the one with the full moon in each eye? It's always offering to everyone else that, that, um, that, that love that they're longing for. So he went to his ascetic friends and he then shared this teaching called the Four Noble Truths. He, called the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, the Dharma Chakra, Sutra, Dhamma Chakra Sutta. And in it, he said, this is how you wake up. This is how you wake up. He says, the first thing you need to do is recognize and open to the fact that if you are born into this world, you will encounter a lot of things that are difficult to bear, that are hard to be with. You will encounter stress. You will enc encounter dissatisfaction. You will encounter the pain of being born, the pain of sickness, the pain of dying, the pain of uh, not getting what you want, not wanting what you get, of loss, of separation from that which you hold near and dear. This is what you will encounter. This is what you need to know is the truth about your experience. Not to 
adopt an attitude about this, but to see it clearly, to see it as it is, to learn to navigate this, to find peace with this. Because if you can't find peace with this, if you can't make peace with the way things actually are, then you will end up in the second noble truth. You will end up in a state, what he called the cause of suffering, the cause of mental suffering, what turns the basic challenges and stresses of life into mental suffering is this intense tendency of mind toward grasping and condemning, this intense chronic habit of wanting things to be other than the way they are, which expresses itself in a continuous chronic way as wanting pleasure, wanting to become something, wanting what's next, wanting to stop whatever is going on. The extreme version of wanting to stop things is the suicidal impulse. We know that craving for non-existence is, is just another form of a strong compulsion to get away from the pain of life. Now even that desire to have it all stop or the desire for more, the desire to become, it comes out of love. But we have not recognized that that kind of love leads to more suffering. That method, that medicine makes it harder for us to, to find peace. So how many times today did you notice yourself being averse to what was present? Wanting what you didn't have. Just, I know this is, our, this is our condition. The beauty of the practice is that the very, what we call torments of the mind, that which torments us and makes us think we can't be happy now, when those experiences are brought into the light of awareness, as the light shines brighter, as that Francois Fenelon when those experiences are brought into our, our heart and mind, the very thing that when we don't recognize it torments us, those very same qualities of mind of wanting, of waiting, of, of longing, of loneliness, those very same experiences, instead of tormenting us, they tenderize us. They become, as Trungpa Rinpoche calls, the manure of Bodhi. They become the the cause of our awakening. They become our path. That's why I said the path is highlighting, is enlightening all those things that confuse us, that bind us, that when we miss, they, they make us feel like we can't be happy. When we see them, we, they bring us right back to this vital point. Ah, that is the wanting mind. That's the aversive mind. I'm still here. Is there any evidence for anything missing right now? I can ask myself that question once I've seen what's going on. So it's essential that we, as the Buddha suggested, that we turn toward the reality of things that are difficult to bear in our life. The reality of what he called dukkha. The reality of, as James spoke about, of change. The, a kind of pain, that, a kind of challenge of being with the incessant changing nature of things. And for each of us to realize that whatever changes doesn't, can't give us lasting satisfaction. And so it, our life in some ways is marked by a, if we're born, the definition of birth is it's a leading cause of feeling unsatisfied. <laughs> and as James highlighted so beautifully, another mark of our experience that we have to come to terms with, part of the, the, uh, the challenge of our life is it's in some way out of our control. It's, um, 
sometimes described as anatta, not self. It's uh, another way of saying it is not in control. It's not me. It's not mine. Everything is just happening. Even this, I, this mind and body. I can't tell this body not to get old. As Jack Cornfield calls this, rent a body. <laughs> I can't be in denial of this if I want to be happy. What, what happens when we're in denial of the, the definition of birth being the, the leading cause of aging? What do we do? We, we rush to the testosterone store or to the, to the, the cosmetic surgery or, or do everything to, to maintain what the Buddha called our pride in youth. And then maintain, which I think is built into our DNA, our pride in health. And then most importantly, maintaining our pride in life. And, and he said that when he saw the reality of sickness, old age, and death and really got it, turned his attention toward it, those three prides of, of youth, of health, and life just evaporated. And when that when pride, when that clinging, that that grasping at youth and um, health and life fades away. What's there? Peace. Open, inviting, and comfortable. So if you have fallen into the second noble truth, the cause of suffering being uh, this state of grasping, he had a prescription for that too. Because he knew that we most of us don't just stay at the first one and, and find peace. We usually are very far along the line of, um, of delusion and grasping and condemning, becoming. And he had a prescription. He said, uh, you need to learn to let go. And if you, as Ajahn Chah puts it, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. I was thinking just now about, uh, I was, the student of Ajahn Chah was, uh, a f- uh, is a fellow named Ajahn Sumedho who has a very sweet teaching where he says the, that he has simplified his practice down to two words, let go. He goes on to say, rather than try to develop this practice and develop that and learn Pali and Sanskrit, the Majamaka, the Prajnaparamita, uh, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, Vajrayana, and be, uh, becoming the world-renowned authority on Buddhism and being invite, invited to great international Buddhist conferences, let go. <laughs> and then he says, I, he did nothing but this for about two years. Every time he tried to get somewhere or figure things out, he'd say, let go. Until the, the desire would fade out. So letting go doesn't mean getting rid of it. It means just letting Letting yourself see what's arising in your mind, kissing the joy, kissing the, the pain, kissing everything as it flies. He says he did nothing but this for about two years. Um, and then he realized there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> so, so he suggests that you keep this refrain in your mind all the time, no matter where you are. Otherwise, you'll become a great Buddhist. Remember, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Buddha was awake. So are you. And the point of our practice is to stay that way and bloom, blossom. Let all the qualities that flow from wakefulness um, flower. Let them mature. You know, if I'm open, I am... I love more easily. I see more clearly. I act more intelligently. When I'm caught up in what I want to happen, um, I'm oblivious. I feel so separate. 
And we have this great capacity to connect and to love. That's why Rumi says failure is the key to the kingdom or queendom within. He says your prayer should be break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. (laughs) Eat me like candy. It's spring and finally I have no will. We just, we, we wake up. So the Buddha went on to say, he said that there is a, a truth of things that are hard to bear, the truth of, of unsatisfactoriness, truth, truth of stress, and all the things that are hard to deal with in our life. This we must open to. The second truth, the cause of what turns it into mental suffering is this grasping and condemning and becoming. This we must abandon or we need to let go. And finally, I think the best news that I've been alluding to all night, that it's possible to, um, to experience uh, a sense of freedom right in the middle of it all. To open our eyes, to open our hearts, and to find that, that peace that's there, It's open. As the Buddha said, there's a field of experience beyond this entire field of matter. So it's not necessarily material. Beyond the entire field of mind that is neither this world nor another, nor both, neither moon nor sun. This I call neither arising nor passing away. So it's not just something that comes and goes. It's unconditioned. This I call neither arising nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. So this is is our capacity. This is our deepest nature. This is freedom. And that's what it's all about. But put in slightly more humorous terms, to me this is a beautiful expression of, of the cessation of of the narrow, tight fist of grasping. This is from, from David Budbill. It's called Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around and never leaving their bowl. I say that's right, every day climbing up the steep side, sliding back over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. So this is a, you know, a slightly humorous flavor, but I'd like to just share one more meditative version of this kind of opening. I always think of the poem from, from uh, Donald Babcock called The Little Duck, where he talks about the duck um, reposing in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. He says... And then he goes on to say he eases himself into the boundless right where it touches him. So we ease ourselves into this freedom, this natural peace by by settling into life right where it's touching you. means right with your immediate experience here. It's not some kind of exotic place some end of the path that you get to. It is just a flowering of your awakening here and now. And so there's no need for us to postpone this. And that's why we give, uh, we give tremendous um, passion, if we can, to our practice. And it's not to get somewhere, it's to stay here. So this is the fruit of somebody who who exercised that kind of passion. It was a nun named uh, Tijitsu, 
She lived in the 1700s. And this is, we may not be practicing with this level of detail right now, but perhaps you'll get a feeling for it, even though it's, it's not the level of specificity that we've been dealing with yet, because it's kind of early in the retreat. Standing at the small, on the small porch of Hakujan, she saw the shadow of a little wren cross the footpath, followed by the shadow of a hungry crow. And she saw that the little wren arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. And that abiding arose, abided, and fell away. And that falling away arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this abided and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on, stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So this is what we're doing moment to moment. We're falling into the midst of everything by just noticing what it is that's happening. So our path begins right here. It's followed right here. The path is here. And it ends right here. So So I think... the Four Noble Truths can be encapsulated in the words of Hafez where he says, because it's such a hopeful teaching, such a reminder that we are trainable, that is really up to us to uh, either stay in confusion and delusion or to wake up. Hafez says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. And I'll skip over the rest where he says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So let's just sit in joy for a moment. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Didn't get to the fourth noble truth. (laughs) Thank you, Sharda. The fourth noble truth. So the first one we got is dukkha cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, and the fourth is the path leading to the end of dukkha, which I've been alluding to as your practice, which is the purification of our actions, the purification of our mind, which is the settling of our mind, the arousing of energy and concentration and mindfulness, and the purification of our view, which is the realization of the Four four Noble Truths, and the inclination of our um, intentions toward Uh, toward love, toward generosity, toward renunciation, toward awakening. So may all of you fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, realize the Four Noble Truths, and may that be true for all beings. Let's just sit quietly. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, have complete peace and freedom. The struggles with the world will come to an end. Thank you for your enduring attention. Thanks for your practice today. We have 30 minutes for walking, for dipping into the 